You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. What I offer today is really hard to live into and consistently apply. Now, I say that because after listening to and talking with so many of us, and finding myself in different types of conversations with people outside of our church family, I find that what I'm going to offer today is easy to forget. As our society argues over what is right and moral and just, we can find ourselves defaulting back to oversimplified answers um, that we believe are supported by Scripture, which Scripture is we take to be our authority for all human ethics, behaviors, and concerns. And yet in the middle of that, In the middle of a heated conversation or after hearing someone promote a point of view that we believe to be unfaithful to the teaching of Scripture, we're often tempted to cite a Bible verse or two in support of our view, and that's a noble and well-intended effort to correct what we believe to be wrong. I think it's especially true when it comes to hot-button issues in our society like abortion or gender roles and gender norms or sexuality or racism or war or patriotism or just politics in general. And issues like this provoke such an emotional response within us that it has the power, I think. And I don't think we reckon with this too much. It has the power to inadvertently color how we read the Scripture. And it has the power to inadvertently color our well-intended applications of Scripture that at best it may be mistaken, at worst it's just inadequate uh, and and just just wrong. I've done it. Uh, I imagine some of you have done it. And I think it's helpful. I think that's where the series becomes helpful. I think it's helpful to see Jesus through the centuries and see how the person of Jesus reveals God's heart and character and purposes. And to do that, we always have to go to the book that we so easily quote, the Bible. And so I think it's helpful that we begin with the Bible. And so here's where I'm going. The Bible is not a flat text. Say flat text. By flat text, what I mean is that not all commands and teachings of Scripture carry equal weight. For example, don't eat pork and God is love are not the same. Right? Like don't eat pork and love your neighbors, you love yourself. Do not carry the same weight unless, of course, your neighbor serves you bad barbecue. Then you need to question their love. But other than that, like they're not the same. And God's people seems to have always been prone to reading the Bible this way. Maybe it's why Jesus tried to help the Jewish political and religious leaders understand that the scriptures cannot all carry the same weight. It cannot be read as a flat text. And at worst, we can't look at it as a religious text at which we pick and choose what we want. So Jesus, in an encounter with the Jewish political and religious leaders, he says this to them. He says, woe to you, which woe is a word for curse. I mean, it's not a good word, right? It's not, it's not like slow down. Uh, when, I was, when I was little and I'd ride my grandma and people would like break in front of her, she'd be like, whoa, Nellie. First off, I never knew who Nellie was. Um, and I didn't know what woe meant. And I don't think my grandmother meant curse Nellie, right? Because that would be bad and that would be out of character for my grandmother. But woe for us means something different than what it means here. Woe means curse, right? So curse to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have neglected, read this with me, the more important matters of the law, which are what? Justice, mercy, and faith. Faith is another word for allegiance. These things should have been done without 
neglecting the other. It's not an either or. All right, but there's but there's a there's a pecking order. So what I'm going to say today isn't either or stuff. It's both and stuff, but it is a there are primary things and secondary things. This way of reading the scripture, understanding that justice, mercy, and allegiance or faith, that they are the weightier matters of the law, that makes the most sense in light of what Jesus taught as the greatest commands, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That all in the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Because justice and mercy is what love looks like in public, right? It's what love looks like when it's embodied. Paul even taught this. Look at what he said in Romans 13, verse 8. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Or whatever other commandment. Look at what Paul's doing there. Paul is so confident that the Bible's not a flat text that he's willing to say, and whatever other commandment are all summed up in this. Read it with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Dude, like that alone is enough, right? Like, think on these things, right? Love does no wrong to a neighbor no matter how justified. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. When the Scriptures are read as a flat text, we treat Scripture as the church's constitution, where all commands become equal in weight. But when the Scriptures are read for what they are, and what I mean by that is a written account of the dramatic unfolding of God's redemptive intentions with the world, they carry a higher sense of authority in our lives. Read this way, the Scriptures propose a different world to us. Like, the Scriptures propose a different way of seeing ourselves as people made in the image of God, a different way of seeing God and His intentions of the world, a different way of seeing others, a different way of seeing and understanding how to live in society. It helps us understand our place in the story that is unfolding, that we read about, that this book is pointing us to, understand and see. It becomes so much more. Matter of fact, it becomes so much more that if we listen long enough and we listen close enough and we look intently enough, we might even see that the Bible offers us a counter-imagination, a different way of imagining what the world could look like when Jesus is actually Lord of it. A different way of what society could look like and a different way society could function when Jesus is Lord of that society. A different, as Plato would say, a different politic. A different governance structure within the people of God. Because after all, the people of God are citizens of a kingdom that proclaims a king. Different way of understanding everything. And see, in the early church, the central belief that our view and understanding of Jesus should shape all readings of Scripture was very much at work, even in its worst moments in the early church. They believed that Jesus was the supreme authority over the church. They didn't believe the Bible was. They believed that the Bible was second to Jesus because the Bible itself claimed that Jesus was the head of the church. So to claim that the Bible was the head of the church would be to make a claim contrary to what the Bible makes. And so they kept things in the right place. And you hear it in our language when people go, is that a Bible-believing church? I've had it, I've had it. are you a Bible-preaching preacher? Like, I'm a Jesus-preaching preacher, and I use the Bible to do that. 
what I try to be. See, the language matters, though. The scriptures are the inspired witness that leads us and points us to Jesus, who is the living word of God. That's why I think Jesus one time when he was again in a confrontation with the Jews, he said in John 5, 39 through 40, he said, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. Like every word of scripture is pointing to Jesus. The scriptures are a means to the end that is Jesus. Again, I told you, this is nothing new. I think it's easy to forget. But we're going to get into kind of brass tacks in a minute. See, many times we say to the world, the Bible is what God has to say to us. And on one level, maybe that's true. But that's not the claim that the Bible makes about itself. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible goes much bigger and much higher and more specific than that claim. The Bible would say that the person of Jesus is what God has to say to us. I think it's why John in his gospel begins this way, and this is where we're going. So John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14. John 1, verse 1, verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, say it with me, with God, and say it with me, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then later on in verse 14, it says, read this with me, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Here's the thing. And I've said this before. I've said this several times again, nothing new, but I think easy to forget. So consider today a reminder that John chooses a very particular word to describe God, the son, and to talk about the incarnation of the person of Jesus Christ. The word, word in the Greek is what? Logos. And that means what? Logic. The word logos means logic. God's logic became flesh. And when John attaches the Greek word logos, which is a fine word to use in his own dictionary and in his culture, when he uses that word and he attaches it to God, he is saying that Jesus is God's divine logic. Jesus is the living word that became flesh. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus got to a point where the law and the prophets weren't enough. Jesus was everything the law and prophets were attempting to articulate, but have to bow down to. As one pastor says, and I'm going to get this wrong because I've kind of flipped it in my head, that God had grew weary of trying to talk through priests, prophets, and words on a page. So instead, he became a person. Jesus is what God has to say. And every word that's written about him should be interpreted through that. And I do think that our language matters. Is the Bible what God has to say to us? Okay, but what's it has to say? Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. That's what the Bible says. Jesus is the true and living word of God. We study the scriptures. We learn from the scriptures. We allow the scriptures to teach us or rebuke us, but we do all of this with Jesus as our teacher, as our instructor. So what I wanted to offer today was a reminder of this understanding of Jesus through the centuries, that Jesus is the living word of God, that he is the divine logic of God. And it's really, it's really important because if my interpretation of Jesus, if my interpretation of a Bible verse 
verse cannot be validated or affirmed in the, in the ministry and the teachings of Jesus, I need to rethink my interpretation. Because everything that was ever written about Jesus and everything that was ever written in the scripture should be and supposed to be commentary on the person that came to make all of it possible. It's a Jesus-centered reading of scripture. So here's what I think this looks like in brass tacks, okay? So we're going to do some exercises. All right, so we're going to read verses together. We're going to all read it together. And then I'm going to try and sort of make sure that for those of us who may not recall the story, I'll give a little context to it. And then we'll ask ourselves, if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what is he saying in this story? All right, so let's read together. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Here's the deal. We see Jesus in this story, Luke 5, 1 through 11, call Peter, James, and John, three ordinary blue-collar fishermen to follow him, to learn from him, and to help him literally change the world. That's the story. That's the context. Jesus calls three blue-collar ordinary folks. So if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, and of all the things for the Holy Spirit to include in the Scripture, he includes a story, then what is God saying to humanity in the person of Jesus? At least one thing I think he's saying is that God can and wants to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And if we believe it and receive the invitation of Jesus to follow him, we must be willing to lay aside anything that gets in the way of following. I think what God may be saying in the person of Jesus is that there are no qualifications to enter into his life and share in his work. No qualifications beyond the willingness to trust him and follow him. To go where he goes and do what he does. And here's the good news of this gospel. There is no one too ordinary, too uneducated, too unimportant, too unrefined. All have a place in God's kingdom. All. The early church believed this so much that the early church got the reputation of being the community of ragamuffins, being the one society that would accept the people that Roman and Jewish society would not accept. There was a time when the church believed this so much. Luke chapter 5, we can go on, verse 12. Read it with me. Reaching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the disease left him. Now what's the context? Jesus heals a leper. But not just heals a leper, what does he do? Now what does he do? What does it say? He touches him. To touch a leper would make Jesus what? It would make him religiously unclean. That's what the scriptures, you with me? That's what the scriptures taught. Scriptures taught that to touch a leper would to make you unclean. But the living word of God touches the leper. Helps people understand the scriptures can't be read as a flat text. Right? So if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, what's he saying in this story? Well, at least one thing I know he's saying is that if God is willing to embrace and touch even the most unclean, especially those society marginalizes, then he can offer healing to the deepest places of our own lives too. And there's nothing he's not willing to touch and embrace. Like this need that we have to hide from God is unnecessary. Because if Jesus is willing to do this, 
then what does this say about God? That God is willing to do the same. In the person of Jesus, God says, there is no life he cannot redeem. And there is no societal boundary that can keep him from you. Now, if we start interpreting the Bible this way, how does this impact how we treat other people? How does this impact how we see God treating us? Let me ask you something. How does this impact how we share this idea of the gospel with other people? Do we have a gospel that tells people that they're in and they're out? Because if we do, I'm not sure that's the good news. I don't see Jesus doing that. Jesus would have been unclean, man. He touched him anyway. Because God had something to say through Jesus. Well, that's not all. So Luke chapter 5, verse 17, we can keep going. Read it with me. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. In this story, Jesus has a teaching moment that's interrupted by a man and his friends. You may remember the story. The man's paralyzed and his friends want him well, like good friends would. And what we see is Jesus giving the paralyzed man something different than he expected. See, because of this paralyzed man's faith, Jesus offers his forgiveness from his deeper hurts. More than the legs that did not work, Jesus wanted to heal the soul and the heart that clearly was not working. So Jesus forgives him of his sins. And a dispute, a dispute rises up, begins to break out as to whether or not Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That's the way the story goes. So to prove his authority over all things, Jesus does what seems to be the easiest thing for Jesus to do, and that is to heal the paralyzed man and have him walk. And so he does. If Jesus would have only healed this man of his paralysis, this man would have still walked away a wounded, broken soul. That's how the story would read. But because Jesus is what God has to say to humanity and in his person has the authority to do all things, this, parallel, this paralyzed man walks away wholly healed with the shalom or the peace or the wholeness of God. So if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, what could he be saying? For one, he could be saying that our expectations are really sometimes off. Could be saying that. Could be saying that our expectations are sometimes, you ready? Too low. Too narrow. Not big enough. See, because at least one thing I think Jesus is saying, uh, that God is saying through Jesus, is that God has authority to do whatever he wants, however he wants. And like this man who only wanted physical healing, but walked away physically, emotionally, and spiritually healed, Jesus offers more than we can imagine. But we come to Jesus sometimes, even in desperation, where we're willing to break down the roof for God to do something that is actually smaller than what God could do. And then the other part of what maybe God could be saying through Jesus is that we're, some of us are the ones arguing about it in the room, right? Like, that's what's happening too. They're arguing about it. And the person of Jesus, I think what God has to say is that there's no sin he will not forgive. And we are always about consequences, right? That's how we do things. We're all about consequences. 
Like, think about that just for a minute, please. Like, I, I understand consequences, but think about this for a minute. What's the consequence of our sin? Come on, somebody say it. Yeah, four-letter word, right? Hell. What's the consequence of our sin? Where you are, I don't know where you may stand on the whole idea of hell. Let me put it this way. The consequence of our sin, eternal, like, disconnect, separation from God. That's the consequence. And yet, what does God do in Jesus to the consequence? Does he hold it over our heads? Does he say, now, I've forgiven you, but you know there are consequences for that. Yeah, there are things that follow us as a result of our decisions. I've got those scars. I've got a paper trail. No question. But let's look at this for a minute. If this is what Jesus, this is what God has to say to humanity, then what are we hearing from God? If this is what God has to say to humanity, what are we telling people? We going to hold people's sins over their heads for the rest of their life? Is that how God does us? Are there consequences for those actions? Of course. But what are we called to? Mercy. What did Jesus say is the way to your matters? Mercy, justice, faith. Might we have to live underneath the consequences? Yes. But can God not deliver us even from them? See, I think what God has to say through Jesus is that there is no sin that he will not forgive and there is no hurt he will not heal. What are you hearing from God? And what are you telling others about him? Next story, Luke 5, 27 to 28. Read it with me, please. A tax collector named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Now, quick context, I say this a lot, but just to remember, tax collectors are Jewish people who work for the government of Rome who rip off their countrymen, and they take a little more than what Rome asks them to take, and they get to keep it from themselves. How popular is Matthew and his people? Not. So if we see Jesus invite a treasonous national traitor to follow him, that's what he is, Matthew. As a Jew working for the Roman government to unjustly overtax the Jews, Matthew has the power to take more than what was required of Rome, keep the rest from himself. And we see Jesus, we see Jesus inviting a treasonous national traitor who's a thief to follow him in his movement and to join him in his movement. And if Jesus, the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, what is he saying? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> At least one thing I think he's saying is that God will call, invite, sometimes enlist even those we would consider the most despicable among us to join him in his life and his mission. But you know how we know whether or not Jesus is saying that? By the fruit of Matthew's life. If Matthew would have gone on being a tax collector, would we conclude the same? Couldn't, man. Because if you follow Jesus, it's got to look like something. In the person of Jesus, God is saying that no matter the shame, no matter the regret you may feel about the choice you made yesterday, or last week, or last year, 
10 years ago. You are invited to join him in doing his work. You're invited to let go of shame and regret. You can only imagine what Matthew's shame and regret was. When he saw Peter, James, and John, blue-collar fishermen, I can only imagine what he saw. I I can't imagine what he saw when he saw these guys and he realized that he was ripping them off of their hard-earned money all this time. I can't imagine what he saw when he saw Simon the Zealot, who was a radical sort of party, radical political guy who would have killed Matthew on any given day of the week. I can't imagine what he saw when he saw Simon. I can't imagine the shame and the regret that Matthew must have felt about ripping his own people off for a false king and a false kingdom for his own gain when he discovered that Jesus was the king of the real kingdom. I can't imagine what Matthew felt. But I can't imagine that if the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, is that we're invited to let go of the shame and regret and trust that when we let it go, God isn't going to pick it up. That regret and that shame will be left exactly where we drop it. Keep going, Luke 5, 29. This is like a sketch of Luke 5, apparently. Right? All right, read this with me. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I know I talked about this last week. I know. But I think it's good to remind ourselves of this again. Because again, when we're in the heated moment of the conversations with people, and the heated moment of conversations and political debates or water cooler conversations or moral debates, I think sometimes we forget this stuff. Here we see Jesus catching public heat from Jewish political and religious leaders for sharing a table with more tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> He's sharing a table with more like more traitors and lawbreakers. And the problem is that Jesus doesn't look like a holy man, and he's not acting like one. Jesus reminds the Jewish political and religious leaders that that is exactly these kind of people that need healing, whose lifestyles and practices are covered in sin and whose lives are broken by it. Like, that's exactly what he says. So so here's the thing. If the person of Jesus, what we see in Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, then what is he saying? I think at least one thing he's saying, you ready? Is that if God wants, wants, everybody say wants, Say desires. Say longs. If God wants desires and longs to eat, drink, laugh with, and love the worst of society at a table of fellowship, we should too. The religious leaders had an understanding of what it means to be righteous that moved them away from the brokenness and darkness of society. Let me say that again. Because this is like Christian bubble syndrome. The religious leaders had an understanding of holiness and righteousness that moved them away from the brokenness and darkness of society. When the light leaves the darkness, what happens to the darkness? It stays dark. It gets darker. But even if just a flicker of light enters into the darkness, what does it do to the darkness? It at least lights something up. And why are Christians always creating holy huddles and retreating? All because grandma used to say bad companionships corrupts good habits as if she read that as a flat text, not realizing everything else Paul had been saying in Corinthians. If that would have been the case, the Corinthian church would have split because they were having problems. 
It's just here, it's here. In Jesus, we see that God has an understanding of what it means to be actually, to actually be righteous. God has an understanding of what it means to be righteous that moves them in closer to the brokenness and darkness of society. And Jesus, God reminds us that it is hospitality. Okay, nerd, nerd moment, because I take any chance I can. Hospitality, Greek word, anybody know it? Yes, I love you, whoever said it, because we say all of it. Was that you, Martha? Oh, was that Leo? Okay, good. Philoxenia. Philoxenia. That's the Greek word. Everybody say philoxenia. Okay, philo is one word. Xenia is actually another word. Put together, it creates the word hospitality. But philo means kinship love. Say kinship love. Xenia means stranger. Say stranger. So philoxenia, translated hospitality in your Bible, literally translates what? A kinship love for strangers. Now, who fits under the category stranger? Anybody you want. Yeah, you could say everybody, but, but no, but specifically like a stranger in the Bible times would be immigrants, foreigners, strange people, marginalized people, all that. Dude, kinship love for strangers is an ethic of the Christian church. And we're pushing strangers out. And we're calling it political complications. What do you do politically? I don't know. Ask me what you do kingdom politically. I got an idea. Ask me what the USA should do. I ain't got a clue. That's Babylon. Babylon do Babylon things. Kingdom of God, folks, is supposed to do kingdom of God stuff. It's got to look like something. These are the people that had walls separating them from the Jewish society. What does God do? Scales it and sits at the table. That's what he does in a story. In Jesus, God reminds us that it is hospitality and embracing love. Say embracing love that prepares the heart for conviction, not accusation. Embracing love, not accusation, prepares the heart for conviction. Say it again. Embracing love and embracing love, not accusation. Welcome, come here. Now we got to get this thing right. That's how that works. Come on, come on, come with me. Yeah, how you doing? You like? Now we got to get this thing right. Not like, you got to get this thing right. And then come on, right here. But you got to get it right. It's not it. It's an embracing love that prepares the heart for conviction, not accusation. It's an embracing love that stirs a desire for change, not judgment. Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand. Somebody said, I'm who I'm going to pick on. Let me pick on Martha. Martha's engaged. She's getting married soon. Yay, Martha. Martha was a student at Regent with me uh, in a senior class. Lily is BFF. I'm so glad you're here. One day we'll meet your fiance. Nobody's ever met the dude, but we, we believe he exists. I'm just playing. He's real. He's real. So Martha, so come back because of Martha. Martha like, I judge you. I judge you for this and for that and for this and for that. You know what Martha's response isn't? Oh, thank you. Like, that's not her response. And I know I'm like I'm making light of this thing, but why is it? Why is it? Why is it that you and I fall off the wagon when it comes to this stuff? Like the thing that saves us is the thing we don't extend to other people because we're righteous, or because we got to do what's right, or because that's not the way things work, or because whatever. What about the country? What about this? What about that? We have what about isms all day long. What about isms? What about? What about? What about? What about all day long? And Jesus is like. There's a chair at the table. What disturbs a desire for change is embrace. 
What stirs a desire for somebody to make right what's been made wrong is embrace. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies, not belliterate them. Love your enemies, bless them, welcome them, feed them, give them something to drink. Because maybe if we do, they won't remain enemies. That's what he teaches. It's just it's so right there. It's in the Greek, even like it's right there. In the person of Jesus, God is saying that no matter what any of us has done, anyone's welcome at the table. Anyone. Then why in God's name are we keeping people from the table? We're going to skip Luke 8. I mean, we could have done this all day and we got all day. Luke 8, chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1. This is long, so everybody, uh, everybody do this with me. Now, just a little heads up. I don't know exactly. I think that's Chuzza, which is unfortunate for her. Um, but that's how we'll go with it. But if you know the right name, Chuzza, Chuzza, um, whatever. So let's do this, all right? Soon after, he was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her, Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others were supporting them from their possessions. Now, why in God's name does the Holy Spirit include this text in the middle of a gospel of God's ongoing unfolding of a story of complete and total embrace of peoples? I think it's pretty simple, but it took me for real all my life until about 10 years ago to see it. Here's what I mean. The society in which Jesus lived and taught was patriarchal. You know what patriarchal is, right? Like dudes ruled, girls ruled, right? Like that's, that's how that was actually in Hebrew. Like that's what they would, right? Like that was the deal. All right, so patriarchal and hierarchical, that means the husband was the head of the household and women and children and slaves were subordinate to him. Subordinate. Everybody say subordinate. All right, that's important. Roles and tasks were clearly divided by men and women. So Jesus and his first followers were people of their particular time and place. Yet, and this is the part we don't oftentimes know, Jesus was unusually open. Jesus was extraordinarily open, remarkably open to the participation of women in his movement something women were not allowed to do as a rabbi, as a Jewish teacher, because that's what Jesus was, a Jewish teacher. And in the context of first century Judaism, it was very surprising, if not scandalous, that a Jewish teacher and his male disciples would have been accompanied by women who were not their wives, who would have been financially supported by women who were not their wives, who were given a voice. We know Mary Magdalene. We know they had voices too. They had voices. The first resurrection sermon was ever preached was by Mary Magdalene, and it was the easiest, quickest sermon, which should say something to the rest of us dudes, when she just said, he's alive. Like, right? Like, like, like I'd have to expand on that for 30 minutes, but she just walked in like, Jesus is risen. And the church says, amen, and that's the way it works, right? Like, that's the deal. That's the story. Here's, here's what I think. And if you read it all, here's what I think. If the person of Jesus is what God has to say to humanity, what in the world is he saying? I think he's saying the same thing Paul said too. Paul said it this way, that our identity, it's our identity, our identity, all of the social categories get placed in subordination to our identity 
that comes to us in Christ. Paul said, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Read this with me. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. The person of Jesus is what God is saying. Then I think what God is saying is that no matter what society says about your gender or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status, you have full equality in the kingdom of God. And here's the last thing I want to remind us of real quick. It would be really helpful for the church, listen to me please, this is important. If we were to interpret Paul through Jesus, and I might even suggest it would have been helpful to interpret Paul through Paul. What I mean by that is that when Paul writes about a woman's issue in like Timothy and Titus, but then makes a claim like this, which is a higher ethic claim, not a flat reading, but a higher ethic claim, it would be helpful to interpret those other situations through this, lest we just run into a complete contradiction. Especially when the scriptures teach that New Testament women had prophetesses who preached, who gave words, if you read Corinthians, in the middle of worship gatherings. It would just be helpful. It'd be helpful if we understood Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe and Junia. Junia, who was called an apostle in Romans. Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church. It'd just be helpful if we interpreted Paul through Paul. But it'd also be helpful if we interpreted Paul through Jesus. I didn't always know this. I just didn't. I didn't always know what this meant. I didn't always know that the Bible wasn't a flat text. I didn't. And when, because I lived most of my life proof texting and arguing as if the Bible was a flat text, what I found about me when I find myself in the throes of a heated argument is that I default back to what I did longest. You ever done that? The thing you've done the longest and you get caught up in a heated argument, all of a sudden it rears its ugly head because that's the default move. And what I forget is what I actually know, what I'm learning. It's just easier to go back to what I'm familiar with, especially when I'm heated or especially when I'm disoriented or confused. And what I wanted to do today was just remind us of a very simple thing, that if I have something to say to humanity, which I say I do every week, then I need to be saying what I think God is saying, at least in my best of my ability. And if I want to know what God is saying, then I need to look at the person of Jesus because Jesus is what God has to say to humanity. Before truth is a proposition, before truth is a proposal, truth is first and foremost always a person. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So as you enter into the week, as you step outside of this building, I'll come on up, John. We're going to do we're going to do presents in a minute. I want you to take some time for the next few minutes as we practice the presence of God, and I want you to ask yourself, what is it you've been hearing God say that you've gotten all wrong that you don't see in the person of Jesus? Okay, that's number one. 
What is it you've been hearing God say to you that you may have gotten all wrong because you just don't see that in Jesus or it just doesn't make sense in the person of Jesus? So I want you to think about that. That's number one. Number two, I want you to think about what it is you've been saying God says that isn't in the person of Jesus. So two things today. I know we've been very uncomfortable during practice. I know some of you are like, I don't like practice presence anymore because for last week because I had to deal with people I don't like. So last thing, last time we're going to do it this way until next week. So who is it? What is it you've been hearing God say that doesn't make sense to you, to you? That doesn't make sense in the person of Jesus. When you think of Jesus, it just doesn't make sense. But yet, for whatever reason, it's just what you hear him say. And then what have you been saying God says to others that doesn't make sense in the person of Jesus? I want to ask you to take time. So let's take some time and quietly, prayerfully consider that right now. Father God, we, we want to hear you. We want to hear what you have to say. We want to hear you as your Spirit speaks to us. We want to hear you as the Scriptures illuminate our minds. We want to hear you as we see Jesus. So we see what you have done, what you were doing when you embodied your own logic, your own reasoning, your own intentions. We've come to understand that Jesus is what the law and the prophets point toward and bow to. That Jesus is what the Hebrew scriptures were trying to say but could never fully articulate. That Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a person. So help us. If Jesus is what you have to say to humanity, then help us to know and help us to understand that all we tell humanity must be seen in the ministry of Jesus too. Jesus is what you have to say to each one of us and help us to hear you clearly. Father, forgive us for the times that we default to the easy interpretations and don't want to do the intellectual or the hard or the thoughtful or the emotional work. We just want to shortcut shortcut the thing because it just makes us uncomfortable or irritated. Or maybe it just disrupts what we've always believed. I can't imagine. Through your Spirit, comfort us as we embrace the disruption, the disorientation, and the discomfort so we can faithfully experience the wondrous love that you offer in Jesus and then deal that love out to all who need to know it. So be with us, God. Thank you so much for speaking to us, for not abandoning us, for not just giving us instructions or a manual, but for actually showing us what it means to be fully human and to live under your rule and under your reign and in light of your love. Thank you so much, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.